And so, Father God, would you be our cornerstone at all times, not just, Father, when we're walking through the valleys of life, but even when we're on the mountain peaks of life, would you be our cornerstone? God, we don't want you to be our divine oxygen mask that we just turn to in case of emergency. God, we want you to be the very air that we breathe. And so, Lord God, we, we recommit, we re-up ourselves and our commitment to you being the cornerstone. Receive our worship. Now speak to us, Lord God, from your word. It's to that end that I'm available to you. Use me, Father, I pray, and move among the people, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I want you to take out your devices, click on your Bible apps, and meet me in the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. As you're turning there again, let me just remind you, we're, um, uh, we're doing exploring membership today at Abundant Life. If you're here and you're going, man, I'd love to hear more about the vision and the values and the story of this church. Um, that is a great opportunity, exploring membership for you to come and to connect and to hang out with us. Uh, it's just for an hour. Lunch will be provided, a light lunch, and uh, I would love to meet you and to hang out with you. Uh, also, you have noticed our new contributors tents. Uh, that comes from one of our values. We want to take people from consuming to contributing. And so when we call them our contributor stations, it is, uh, it is an opportunity for you to explore how you can connect. And so I want to encourage all of us who call Abundant Life home uh, that you would just uh, jump in there and serve. In fact, I was just even um, looking at Alyssa early this morning. She is uh, helping out with communion. And what a wonderful example of, of someone who's all in and who's saying, how can I contribute and not just consume. Finally, I want to encourage you all, uh, I need all of you there who can possibly make it to our Discipleship Summit. We are a church that is uh, absolutely committed to reaching the bay for Christ and for this whole thing called discipleship, producing, reproducing followers of Jesus Christ. Latest statistics say only about 1% to 2% of all Christians have actually done that. And I don't say that to berate anybody. I, I think the reason why so many Christians haven't actually made a disciple is because many of us have not been taught how to do that. And so this Discipleship Summit, we're bringing in what I regard to be one of the world's foremost experts, Dr. Kenan Vaughn. Uh, if you can just give me a half day on that Saturday, May 20th, he's going to show you uh, here's what discipleship is and here's exactly the steps you need to take to make disciples. He's going to bring some wonderful resources in uh, and it's going to be a wonderful opportunity. So please, please, please go online as soon as possible and register to be a part of that. Well, we've been in a series on, on dating, and we have just been exploring um, this whole idea of what it looks like uh, to actually date in a way that glorifies God. We, we spent three weeks in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 24, looking at the courtship uh, between Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, this past Sunday, we were in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, just walking through uh, a deeply profound theological philosophical 
philosophical uh, look at sex. We just simply called it the talk. Would encourage you if you haven't watched that to actually go online and and watch that. Uh, today I want to give a direct word to men. Next week, thank you, one man. Uh, next week. I'm going to give a direct word to women. Um, and on Mother's Day, we're going to be in Proverbs 31 next week. If you have not read Proverbs 31, especially the, the last half of that passage, uh, when it talks about the excellent wife, the Proverbs 31 woman, that's where we're going to be. So I want to encourage you. You can actually spend some time this week getting a head start on that. Now, I know I shouldn't say this in, in the tech capital of the world, um, but I hate math. I hate everything about math. In fact, I went to Bible college to get out of math. Don't like math, absolutely, positively. And I'm feeling a lot of judgment here in Silicon Valley. Y'all looking at me like I'm short or something, but I, I don't like math. Uh, in fact, when my kids came to me around second, third grade and uh, want me to help them with fractions, I, I said, I tap out, but there's an app for that. I'll download the app on your iPad and we can, we can get, it, get it rolling. I, I, um, um, I just don't like math, was never really good at it, and fractions just messed me up. But, but one thing that did stick with me from fractions uh, was the reality that, that when you have an equation that deals with fractions or a problem that deals with fractions, uh, one of the most helpful things you can do is to figure out the common denominator. And if you can figure out what the common denominator is, that will help you to navigate the challenge and the problems that that equation proposes. Now, what's true of fractions is actually true of our world. It, there, there's so many things in our world that I just feel, feel I get frustrated with because, because it's as if we deal with the surface issues and we don't get to the common denominator. So, for example, I can just give you the, the issue of race and racism, and I am, as one who grew up in the South, I grew up in Atlanta. I am so grateful to Dr. King because of his work. I can, I can sit on any seat of the bus that I want to. I can drink out of any water fountain that I want to. I can, and, and grateful for the civil rights movement. But, but here's the frustrating thing about the civil rights movement. Racism still exists. And the reason why it still exists is because the civil rights movement, they could deal with laws, but you couldn't deal with hearts, which, by the way, is why you have to have church, because church is one of God's primary vehicles and vessels for getting to the heart. That's why your hope shouldn't ultimately be in the White House. It should be in God's house. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and go there. I've, I've got a real problem with people who will join a political party but won't join a church. Yeah, I got about seven golf claps on that. Any person who will join a political party but won't join a church, what you're saying is my hope is in government. It's quiet in here. Whose email address can I give this week? And so, so one of the things we have to get to is we, we understand that racism is not just a matter of writing new laws. It's a matter of the heart. And the common denominator there is sin. 
Now, let me inch closer to our neighborhood. Sociologists will tell us, they, they tell us, even, even secular sociologists, they say one of the common denominators that runs antithetical to, a, to having a flourishing society is the problem of men. Sociologists tell us that there is a direct correlation between the health of a society and the men in that society. That, that, that one of the common denominators, if you want to build a healthy society, you've got to be a part of building healthy men. <laughs> Statistics are clear. And, 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 and I'm just going to give them to you again. You know these already. Here's what happens to a society that has been overrun with the pandemic of broken men who are now abandoning their responsibility to the home and are leaving generations of fatherless kids. Look at the screen with me. 63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. 85% of all children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. Children simply do better educationally when there's a man in the home. I love this. In fact, children from low-income, two-parent homes academically outperform middle-class kids from fatherless homes. Youth from fatherless homes are twice as likely to engage in criminal activity as those who have fathers in the home. And if that same youth lives in a neighborhood that is populated Mostly by fatherless homes, his likelihood of engaging in criminal activity triples. Now look, look, I, I know I've come by so many addresses today. And this is not a death wish on anybody. It may not have worked out between you and the mother. But, but, but you can still be engaged with the kids. I love Michelle Alexander. Many of you have read her award-winning book, uh, the, the, uh, the New Jim Crow. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. She's tackling this issue of mass incarceration, and there's a lot of finger-pointing and what's happening here in the state of California nationally with the three strikes rule and how unfair that was and how it kind of targeted people of color. I get that. I understand that. That ain't dealing with the common denominator. Actually, what these statistics say is if you want to tackle mass incarceration— you need to be like Michael Jackson and take a look at the man in the mirror and start with yourself, not with a government program. And so what these statistics say is if you want to set your child on a trajectory towards suicide, behavioral problems, poor academic performance, mass incarceration, criminal activity, wallow in your brokenness as a man and abdicate your responsibility to live into what God has called you to live into, and that is to man up, live, love, and lead like Jesus. 
So one of my commitments when I came to Abundant Life is on my short list, one of the things I want to do is I just, I just want to build a culture that builds men. That's why we do the men's huddle. That's why we're going to offer a whole lot of other um, events and programs. We want to build men, build men, build men, build men, build men. And yes, we're doing stuff towards women, but I am intentionally going to be a little bit biased towards that because I believe that if at the end of my tenure we can give back a culture of Jesus-loving Jesus, Jesus living, Jesus leading men, then the bay will be exponentially made better because the men are better. So I want us to look at this. Uh, ladies, I, I want you to take notes. Uh, if you're single, what I'm going to give you today, we're going to look at the life of a godly man. This is a little bit of a different message than what I typically do. We're going to do a biography on a man by the name of Boaz in the scriptures. I'm calling this, is there a Boaz in the, in the house? If you are a single lady, I'm going to give you exactly what you need to look for when contemplating who you need to spend the rest of your life with. And don't settle for any anything less than what I'm going to give you today, all right? Now, men, men, I need you to furiously take notes, especially if you sit next to the significant woman in your life, because ain't nothing sexier to that woman than to see her man furiously taking notes, trying to get better, all right? So I need you to take good notes, and I'm going to give you exactly what you need to be to be the kind of man that God has called you to be. Now, are you ready? Here we go. So we come to the story of Ruth. We don't meet Boaz till chapter 2. Chapter 1 is all about Ruth, and uh, the Cliff Notes version is, um, I believe, um, any psychologist uh, who was forced to render a diagnosis on Ruth just from what she read about Ruth in Ruth chapter 1 would probably diagnose her as being mildly to severely depressed. She's going through a lot. Ruth is a Moabitess. She has gotten married, and her husband has tragically died. She's now a widow. Not only is she a widow, but she does not have any children, which in that society was a huge social stigma. Women who were widowed or left by their husbands, and especially if they didn't have any kids as well, a lot of times the only recourse in antiquity for those kind of women as it relates to how to put food on the table is most of them turned to prostitution. Whenever you see a prostitute in the Bible, it is beyond fair for you to, to, um, to guess that this person was probably married at one time, the husband left or died, and now this, uh, this woman has been placed in an extreme position of vulnerability. Not only that, she uh, attaches herself to Naomi, decides that she's going to follow Naomi from uh, Moab and into Bethlehem, which means she's an immigrant. Not only that, she's poor. She doesn't know how she's going to put food on her table. In fact, when we meet her in chapter 2, we know she's poor because she's doing the, the work of poor people back then, which is gleaning in another man's field. She's a widow. She's barren. She's grieving. She's weeping, the text says. She's an immigrant. She's, she's poor. And yet she will end up encountering a man by the name of Boaz. She will end up married to Boaz. And when Boaz enters into covenant with her, here's what, what's happening. He is inheriting a woman who's been nicked up and scuffed by life. 
There's many things that are wonderful about Ruth. In fact, we'll see it in just a few moments in chapter 3, verse 11. She's called a worthy woman. But even though she's a worthy woman, she's been through a lot. And Boaz inherits all of that. The good parts and the not so good parts. The triumphs and the tragedies. See, when you enter into a relationship with someone, you, you inherit someone's story. Maybe there's pages and chapters that are great, that are riveting, that you love about that person. And then there's some pages and chapters that you don't like. There's brokenness. That's all of us. It always kills me when I sit down and talk to young men, uh, young millennials especially. They'll sit in my office and, or, or we'll be hanging out and eating lunch somewhere and they'll, you know, they'll start talking about the woman they want to marry. And, uh, and I'm always like, brother, you've got some aspirations. This is a little bit of embellishment. But the way they come across, they come across like, yeah, man, I'm going to marry this woman and she's going to be this big time pro professional out in the marketplace making all this money and she'll rush home every day right before me, get home about 5.30, 6 o'clock, have my dinner ready for me every single day. And uh, we'll, she'll have this wonderful meal that is cooked. And then, you know, we'll sit down together and we'll watch ESPN Sports Center after that while she's doing her Beth Moore Bible study at two o'clock in the morning. Her breath smells like roses. She gets up at 445 to make it to the gym at five, works out an hour, rushes home to make sure I've got my scrambled eggs just the way I like it. Then she rushes off to work only to come back home later on that day and do it all over again. Now, I'm not saying that woman ain't out there, but good luck with that. Any ladies got my back on that one? Uh, there was a song, some of us can remember it, some of us chocolate people can remember it back in the 80s, Karen White saying, I'm not your superwoman. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, men, you need to stop looking for your woman in the fiction section of the bookstore. The reality is she's going to come from the nonfiction section. She ain't a fairy tale. She's got a real story. There's pages and chapters of it that you like. In fact, you love the cover. <laughs> but now there's going to be some pages and chapters you don't like. Because she's not a fairy tale. She's got a real story. This is what happens to Boaz. These are real people, real stories, real problems. I want you to fast forward with me to the end of the story because it's important that you get this as we launch out into this message. Here's Boaz. He's married Ruth. They've stepped into covenant with one another. And now they have a child, a son by the name of Obed. Naomi is, is holding Obed. Naomi is, is Ruth's mother-in-law. 
And these ladies say to her in Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, don't miss it. They say to her, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Speaking of Boaz. And may his name be renowned in Israel. Now this phrase. And he, speaking of Boaz, shall be to you, underline it, a restorer of life. That's what the Boaz man looks like. No, the Boaz man ain't God. There's one God and he's alive and well. The Boaz man is, is not the, the woman's savior. But here is Ruth. When we meet her, she's depressed and depleted. When we meet her, she's, she's on the precipice of despondency. She's broken. She's grieving. She's weeping. But at the end of the story, her life's been restored. That's what the Boaz man does. He's a restorer of life. Ladies, don't you ever forget one of the fundamental differences between a boy and a man is boys take, men give. Boys take, men give. Here, here, here's the deal. Ruth is able to say that my life is infinitely times better than what it was pre-Boaz so my, my life was horrible before I met him, but now my, my life is infinitely times better since meeting him. He, he has taken my life to another level. I'm a better woman, not just because I follow God, but because I follow God's gift to me, seen in my husband, Boaz. One of the most tragic things my wife could ever say is if we were out to eat with you and you were to say, has your life gotten better since being married some 18 years to Pastor Brian? If she were to even stop and be like, mm, let me think about that. <laughs> men don't ever forget, we men tend to be thermostats, but our wives tend to be thermometers. We set the environment, our wives reflect the environment we set. Oftentimes, a wife's countenance is a good reflection on her husband's leadership or lack thereof. And what a Boaz does is he restores life. He gives life. He restores life. He gives life. The Boaz man, when you meet him, uh, when, that, when that meeting is over and that conversation's over and he's getting back into his car to leave, you've always got this feeling, I wish I'd had more time with him. I wish I could hang out more with him because he gives life. He gives life. He gives life. That's what a Boaz man does. And I've just got to beg the question, is there a Boaz in the house? Now, what is it about Boaz that makes him a restorer of life? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The first time we meet this brother, the first thing that is said about him, look at it with me. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, underline it, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Here's everything you need to know about Boaz. He's a worthy man. Our text is originally written in a language called Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for worthy, don't miss it. If you miss this, you missed the whole message. It means full of substance. 
full of substance. Now, now on one hand, we, we can say of Boaz for sure that this idea of substance is comprehensive. That there is a dimension with Boaz that it's financial. We're going to see in just a few moments, Boaz is extremely wealthy. But that is to miss the point. When it, when it essentially calls Boaz a worthy man, it is not so much financial as much as it is his character. So that when we say that Boaz is full of substance, we are saying that this man is a man chock full of character. Now, if you get nothing else, I say get this. I, I've had this message on repeat with my boys, and I'm praying it gets through. Your reputation is who people think you are. Your character is who you actually are. Take care of character, and your reputation will fall in place. But be consumed with reputation and neglect character, you'll be found out as a hypocrite. I'm going too fast. Your reputation is who people think you are. Your character is who you actually are. Your character is who you are when no one's watching. Take care of character and your reputation will fall in place. But be consumed with your reputation and neglect your character and you'll be found out as a hypocrite. Boaz is a worthy man. What does that mean? He's chock full of character. Ladies, I don't care how fine he is. He may be tall, tan, and terrific. But for God's sake, make sure there's some character. Make sure he has the character infrastructure to lead you well. You can only fake the funk so long. And that's why I want to give it to you again. I'm always asked, how long should I date? Date long enough to catch a whiff of the character. He's a worthy man. Now watch this. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Boaz is a worthy man. Now look with me at chapter 3, verse 11. Boaz is talking to Ruth. Look at what he says about Ruth in chapter 3, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. know, watch it now, that you are a worthy woman. So here we have a worthy man who ends up marrying a worthy woman. Don't miss it. You tend to attract who you are. You tend to attract who you are. Righteousness attracts righteousness. And as the young folks say, ratchetness attracts ratchetness. Now, if you're sitting up here crying, I don't know why I always get these, you know, no good men and blah, blah, blah. Well, at some point, it's been like seven or eight of them. <laughs> I got to find somebody's email to run y'all to. <laughs> at what point do you go, well, maybe it's me. 
You can't dress like a Jezebel and expect to get a Boaz. I need somebody's email address. If you ain't selling nothing, don't advertise. Boaz, worthy man, man of substance. Ruth, worthy woman, a woman of character and substance. And next week, we're going to unpack that in Proverbs 31. What exactly does that look like to be a worthy woman? Now, what does this exactly look like? I, I want to I just, I'm, 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 I'm giving you a 35,000 foot perspective of, of Boaz. I want to give you six quick things today because I want to unpack everything else that flows from this message is what does a worthy man look like? What does a worthy man look like? Because that's what I want to be. I want to be a Boaz man. I want to be a worthy man. Is there a Boaz in the house? I want to be a Boaz man. And what exactly does that look like? Six things. First, Number one, Boaz has what we call a transcendent purpose, a transcendent purpose, a transcendent purpose. Now, I want to give you two books to read. They're quick books. You can work through them in a day, little small books. Um, They're companion uh, books written by Jeff and Shanti Feldman. Um, And one of them's called um, What Women Want, and another one's called What Men Want. And, and I want to encourage you, get into these books. Shanti Felden is a um, graduate of Harvard. She is a gender uh, and relationship expert. And one of the things that she just nails in this incredible book um, uh, called what, um, actually it's called what, what Men Need, What Women Need, in this incredible book um, that gets into the mind of a man, one of the things that she just talks about is all of us men struggle with what she calls the imposter voice. I don't care how successful a man is, many of us men battle with issues of confidence. Ladies, you need to understand, men don't have huge egos, we just have soft, sensitive ones. You ain't got to amen me on that one. I brought my, preach pastor, preach, thanks music stand. We men don't have big egos. We just have soft, sensitive ones. And there's a voice oftentimes in most men that is just talking in the back of our minds, saying stuff like, you're a fraud. You're going to get found out. You can't do this job. You're not competent enough. We, We wrestle with issues of confidence. Now, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? One of the things that we understand about Boaz is it seems like whenever he opens his mouth, he's always talking about the Lord and always talking about, the God, uh, talking about God. In fact, in just a few moments, we're going to see that he even organizes his business around God. What you understand about Boaz is, is to Boaz, God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. God is everything. Which means the biggest thing to Boaz ain't the paycheck. The biggest thing to Boaz isn't the amount of fields he has. The biggest thing to Boaz isn't the approval of other people. But the biggest thing to Boaz is God. And the way, way Boaz solves his confidence issues is he lets God take care of that. See, see men, here's what you got to understand. And this really is a word for all of us. 
many of us got to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. And we've got to learn to be our own preacher and to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And when you preach the gospel to yourself, here's what you understand, that I am saved by grace through faith, which means I didn't work my way into, into the kingdom. I, I didn't earn my way into the kingdom. I didn't perform my way into the kingdom. I'm not saved by my, comp- by my own competence. God sees me as is, accepts me as is, loves me as is, saves me as is, yet by his grace never leaves me as is, which means this, If God and I are okay, now I'm freed up to lead like he wants me to lead. See, here's the deal. You can't lead and be insecure at the same time. So, so men, if our confidence stuff ain't fixed, we're either going to be passive and not lead at all, or or, or we're we're, going to lead out of a place of dictatorship and even abuse, But when we're settled in who God created us to be, we can be like David, one of the greatest leaders ever in the Bible, who said, when mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Or yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come. In other words, David says, I'm secure in God. And, And what was the residual effect of that? Now he's freed up to lead. So men... If you want to be a Boaz man, you have to have a transcendent purpose, something that's bigger than paychecks, bigger than what your boss thinks, bigger than your employment status, bigger than the car that you drive, bigger than the house or the apartment that you live in. You've got to be rest assured that as long as God and I are okay, now I'm free. You've got a transcendent purpose. Secondly, Boaz has what's called a North Star, a North Star. Here's Ruth. Ruth stumbles into his field. She starts gleaning from his field. And the very fact that she's gleaning from his field tells us something about Boaz. In fact, we know that Boaz is a man of the scriptures because he organizes his business around Leviticus 19 verses 9 through 10. Look at it with me. This is a scripture that Boaz read many times. God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, which is what Ruth is. I am the Lord your God. So here's what God's saying. Boaz, I know this sounds crazy. And I know we in an agricultural community. But here's what I'm asking you to do. You got your field, don't glean to the edges. Leave margin, which means this, Boaz, crazy business principle. I actually want you to leave some money on the table. I'm going to take care of you, Boaz. But I want you, by the way, this is God's welfare policy. Leave margin, why? So that poor people, don't give them a handout. Give them the dignity of work. Let them come and work. God's welfare system is not a system of enablement. It is a system of empowerment. So have them glean. So Boaz says, okay, it's crazy, but you know what? I'm going to adjust my life and my business practices to the word of God. That's what a Boaz man does. He adjusts his life, his finances, everything in his life to the word of God. I love Scrabble. 
absolutely love, love, love Scrabble. Uh, I've been on a 40-day a, a fast from, from television, and it's amazing when you don't watch TV how much time for family you have. And uh, we've been playing a lot of Scrabble lately. I grew up playing Scrabble. I grew up in a pre-app age, which meant when we played Scrabble, you, you know how this works. In Scrabble, Scrabble doesn't let you make up words. And when you come across a suspicious word, it, it, it doesn't let you just debate and what do you think and take a vote. No, 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 no. What we would do growing up in a pre-app world, mama would set a big book down on the kitchen table called dictionary. And whenever we had a question, mama says, now what does the book say? And we would go to the book and we would let the book determine how we navigated the game. That's what a Boaz man does. A Boaz man, at the end of the day, doesn't make up on his own what manhood means. The Boaz man says, what does the book say? And I'm going to let the book define what masculinity in my life looks like. I got to be careful with that analogy because it can make God out to be something you just consult in case of emergency. I think really a better analogy is the North Star. In antiquity, whenever you went on a journey, you know, you didn't consult Siri from your chariot. <laughs> but in antiquity, what you did was, the first thing you did was, you said, where's the North Star? It's this fixed point in the sky, and you allowed the North Star to, to, to determine the steps and the direction that you took. You navigated every single step according to the North Star. That's the Word of God. And that's what the Boaz man does. He gets in the word and he drinks from it on his own. The Boaz man is not some parrot who merely parrots what his pastor says. But he gets into the word for himself. The Boaz man is like Joshua who says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. The Boaz man says, we're going to sit down and have family devotions. I ain't got a degree in Greek or Hebrew, but I love the Lord, and I'm going to open up a passage and pull out some principles and lead my family. Why? Because the Boaz man sets the agenda in his house, and that agenda is the Word of God being the North Star. And again, I've got to ask you, is there a Boaz in the house? Third, I don't know of a better way to say this. But the Boaz man handles his business. He handles his business. Here's Boaz. We meet him. This brother's an entrepreneur. He, he owns his own business, has fields, has people working for him. Again, the point is not you've got to own your own business. It's not the fact that you've... But here's the sense. When, when, when Boaz steps into Ruth's story, he's already checked off the major boxes in his life he needs to check off. See... See, you can't be trying to find yourself and leading a woman at the same time. You can't be trying to find yourself and leading a woman at the same time. This is real basic stuff. Go to Genesis chapters 2 and 3 sometime and read it. Before God gives Adam a wife, he gives him a mission. He's clear on that. So to you 20-somethings, here's what I want to tell you. Your season of reaping is in direct relationship to how you navigate your season of sowing. So I want to say to you right now, 
Get all the education you can. Go to school. Get the bachelor's degree, the master's degree, the, 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 the doctorate degree if you can. Uh, pay off debt. Move out your mama's house. In fact, put down the video game. Get rid of the video game. You're 28 years old. Be, be, be constructive in your life. Join a church. Go on a missions trip. In fact, in your 20s, get life insurance. You as thin as you ever going to be. Your metabolism is racing as fast as it will be. Your insurance premiums will be cheap, 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 cheap. <laughs> Handle your business. Now, I, I want to say this, and uh, it's a multi-ethnic audience, I know, but I'm just going to tell you one of the saddest things that I see, and I see it primarily as a pastor when I do people of color's funerals. It is the saddest thing that I see. How many people of color I've buried over the years and that husband died and had no life insurance. Men, you need to look at your duty of handling your business to not just happen in this life, but it needs to, you, you need to look at providing for your family beyond this life. Handle your business. Pay off debt. Handle your business. Again, I got to ask you, is there a Boaz in the house? Fourth, Boaz is a provider. He sees Ruth, asks a few questions about who she is, sees Ruth, sits down with her over lunch, and he says these words to her. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 14, look at it with me. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. I love it. Underline this. And she ate until she was satisfied and she even had some left over. It's called being a provider. Now, when I talk about a man being a provider, this is not me saying uh, that women can't work outside the home. Actually, in antiquity, here's what you need to understand. Um, uh, in a lot of cases, it was the women who worked harder, uh, even more harder than, than, the, uh, th than the man did. In fact, next week, we're going to be in with looking at the Proverbs 31 woman, and we're going to see in the Proverbs 31, she works. She works. Plus, just the reality is we live in the Bay, and you understand that a whole lot better than I do, all right? Uh, this ain't Memphis. This ain't, you know, um, uh, Alabama. This is the Bay. Lord have mercy. So when I, talk about, when I talk about the husband being a provider, this is not saying that the woman shouldn't work. What, what, I am, what I'm getting at here is one of the harshest things Paul ever says is, he says, if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. And I think what Paul is getting at here, it's, it's not just, I'm not talking to the guy who's unemployed but looking. I'm talking to the guy who has no drive, who has no passion, who has no motivation, who's, who's, who's adding to his wife's burden and not trying to take from it, who's not shoulder to shoulder with his wife and trying to go somewhere and build something. That's the kind of person I'm talking about. Men, we've been called to provide. It's the background elevator music of, of, our, of our minds. And that's why the Boaz man, one of the worst days of the month for him is maybe when he's balancing the checkbook and realizes there's not a whole lot left over. That's, that's tough for us. Why? Because we've been wired to provide. One of the most joyous thing a man can ever do is just sit at the dinner table and realize there's enough food there. My kids got on the, the, the new shoes and the outfit. I've been, I've been able to contribute towards that. It's how we're wired. Fifth, the Boaz man is not just a provider, he's a protector. He's a protector. Here's what Boaz says. 
He says, who's the new girl? Oh, that's Ruth. You know, Naomi. Yeah, they just came. Oh, really? Okay. So here's what Boaz says. Don't none of y'all touch her. Don't none of y'all touch her. Leave her alone. We're going to protect her. That's what the Boaz man does. Here's Ruth. She's vulnerable. He could have exploited her vulnerabilities. What does he do? He steps in, he initiates, and he protects. My mentor is a guy by the name of Dennis. And um, if you walk into Dennis's house, the first thing you see is a big bat mounted on the wall that has carved into the bat two words, respect her. And then there's all these signatures around those words, respect her. I said, Dennis, what's up with the bat? He says, hey, man, uh, I got four daughters. They're all grown now. Uh, um, But in high school, you wouldn't take one of my daughters out? You didn't just roll up and just take her out. No, no, no. You had to interview, get interviewed by me first. I says, really, did it something about the interview? Oh, he says, yeah, I'd love to tell you about it. He says, what I do is I bring out my files of all my bank statements, and I give it to this guy I want to take out my daughter. I said, I want you to look through my bank statements. I want you to look through what I got in my checking account, my savings account. And the guy's like, serious? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is valuable information. I want you, yeah, this is very valuable. They go, well, why are you doing that? Well, because actually you're asking for something a lot more valuable to me than my money. And you need to know, I'm going to put it out there, Dennis said, right now you're the enemy. So, so you want to take out someone that I've been investing all my life in. And you want me to just let you get in your car a stranger. So he says, here's the rules. You can keep your lips to yourself. He said, my daughters would always be in the corner just cowering. And keep your lips to yourself, keep your hands to yourself. He just give them all these rules. And if they agreed to it, he brought out the bat, and they would sign it. Now, that may be extreme, but hear me. It's what a man does. It may not be that. That's just what a man does. I'll never forget picking up this one girl when I was in high school to take her out. And uh, her dad was downstairs cleaning the shotgun. <laughs> and uh, I was like, see ya. And uh, he's like, come here. Yes, sir. If you got a shotgun, you cleaning it. And you say, come here, I'm going to come here. <laughs> he said, as far as I know, my daughter's a virgin. Please return her the way you found her. That's what a man does. Look, I want this to be a place in which people come and they're, we all struggle with stuff. But let me just tell you one thing we don't have zero tolerance for. It is a man who puts his hands on a woman. We're just not going to play with that. We don't, we, we, we don't pray about that. In fact, if I ever hear about that, I'm going to start a ministry with a bunch of six foot nine, 280 pound guys. And I'm going to say, go over to so-and-so's house and lay hands and not for prayer. And I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear what you did because I don't even want to be, want to be held responsible for it. We don't play that around here. That's not what we do. The Boaz man does not exploit. He protects. And again, I got to ask you, is there a Boaz in the house? Finally, Ruth comes home from work, and Naomi's like, girl, how'd it go? <laughs> it went good. Well, where'd you go, girl? Uh, some dude named Boaz. Boaz. He, he's, he's actually close to us. He could, 
He could redeem us. Now, Ruth chapter 3 is the most problematic passage in all the Bible. It's the most problematic chapter in all the Bible. Why? Because it's filled with what's called sexual tension. The commentators, you can just see them turning red trying to explain Ruth chapter 3. In essence, what Naomi said, um, boys is going to drink some wine. We got to talk this guy into redeeming us. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, put that outfit on over there, girl. Spray some of that Fendi on. Uh, all that's not in the text, but you just roll with me. I want you looking good. And at night, I want you to crawl into bed with him. Yeah, ladies, not a handbook for what you should do to get a man. Ruth does it. And notice Boaz's reaction. Chapter 3, he says in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But he is, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. I love verse 18. This is Naomi talking. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Here's what's happening. She's in this vulnerable position, and Boaz could have been like, I got all the power here. You want me to do a favor for you? Well, I'm going to need a favor in return. It's not what he does. He exercises self-control, and he actually protects her dignity. He says, I want you to go out before it's light. I don't want anybody seeing you. That's what he does. Men, let me just say this, and it's just an ugly reality we men know. The average man will go as far as a woman lets him. This is just real talk. The average man will go as far as the woman lets him. That's not Boaz behavior. That's little boy behavior. Here's what a Boaz man does. Boaz man does not wait for the woman to set the boundaries, but a Boaz man says, look, I'm attracted to you, and it's obvious you're attracted to me. Um, so here's the deal. I want to protect your purity as well as mine. So here's the parameters. That's what a Boaz man does. That's called being a leader and not being passive. That's called initiating and acting and not reacting. So what we need is a generation of Boaz men who are just going to say, look, I know it's the first date or maybe the second date or the third date or whatever, and I, I just want to deal with the elephant in the room. I, I, I want some Boaz men to actually stand up and say, I'm committed to Jesus. I love him. And I've got this struggle in my life, and I'm going to do everything I can to not just protect my purity, but to protect yours. If she ain't with it, she ain't the one. So stop waiting for the girl to slap your hands. Boaz men lead. We take initiative. As the band comes and we get ready to go to communion, chapter 4, he redeems her. 
Most scholars say that Boaz is a type of Christ. He, he does for this poor immigrant woman who brings nothing to the table, what she could never do for herself. He gives her a hope and a future. That's what Christ did for us. Later on, we see Boaz and Ruth have a child, Obed. Obed will then have a son, Jesse. Jesse will then have a son named David, the second king of Israel. And in the lineage of David now comes Jesus Christ. Boaz is a type of Christ. Man, I want to shoot you straight. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, what I've just done is I've been talking crazy to you. There's no way why you would do any of this unless you take the first step every Boaz man has to take in order for this to be real, and that is the step towards Christ and inviting him in your life. Why? Because Jesus Christ, all these six things Jesus Christ did in spades when he was on earth. He had a transcendent purpose he said in John chapter 17, Father, everything you gave me to do, I did. He, he had the scriptures as his north star. When Satan tempted him, he kept saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. He quoted scriptures. He handled his business by dying on a cross for us. He provided for people by healing them, by giving sight to the blind. He protected the marginalized and downtrodden, and he exercised self-control. The writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ was the ultimate ultimate Boaz man. So I want to give an invitation this morning. I want to give an invitation for those of you who are here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about what church you grew up in. I'm not talking about the fact that you were baptized when you were two years old. I, what I'm offering is a relationship. There are a lot of religious people who will end up in hell. Anybody can be religious. I'm talking something real. I'm talking something that travels the 18 inches from your head to your heart. I'm talking Christ being Lord of your life. I'm talking Christ being the center of everything. So we want to offer Christ to you. I also want to talk to that man, and you're sitting here, and you're going, man, I just, I, I would call myself a follower of Christ, but I'm just, I'm just not manning up. And I want prayer as a man. I, I'm, I'm not where, anywhere near Boaz. Well, I take refuge in the thought that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That as long as you're breathing, it is God's way of saying, I'm not done with you. There's another chance and another chance and another chance. You can write a new chapter today. You can write a new chapter today. So we want to offer that to you. If you don't know Christ, or maybe you do know Christ, and you're just saying, as a man, would you just pray for me? I just don't feel like I'm stepping up and walking in what God is calling me to walk in. I want to pray for you, and then I want to invite you to come meet me here at the altar. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we just bless you in this place today. We honor you. Thank you, God, that Boaz is a type of Christ. In fact, I'm encouraged, Lord God, when, when men lean into biblical masculinity, we, we become a picture of Christ to our culture. God, we need more of that. 
God, help the church to rise up, not in a sexist, misogynistic way, Lord God, but in an authentically humble way. God, I, I, just, I just pray that there would come out of abundant life just all kinds of men and what we're known as being our restorers of life. We're giving life, not taking life. So I just pray that over us. God, would you save some souls today, Lord God? Would you add to your church today? And would you, would you repair broken men? In Jesus' name, amen.